We are starting off talking with the, the Federal Minister of Transport, Omar Algabra, joins me on the line now to talk about what he is doing in town. Minister, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, good afternoon, Jill. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, and you picked, a, a, well, they've all been good days, but you picked a, a good day for a, an outdoor announcement. Talk a little bit, if you can, $17 million to help deal with some of the issues when it comes to the supply chain. Where is that money going to go? Uh, first of all, Jill, what a beautiful day uh, in Vancouver today. So I feel uh, lucky. I just came from Winnipeg where it was snowing. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> I'm grateful for the weather here today. Um, Look, over the last couple of years, Canadians and Canadian businesses have seen how vulnerable our supply chain network has been. Uh, COVID pandemic, uh, the war in Ukraine, extreme weather events, and people in, in British Columbia here, are, uh, you know, can attest firsthand to the to the impact that flooding has caused. And we're also seeing the labor shortage phenomenon has a, an impact on supply chains and those impacts are contributing to inflation and rising cost of living and they're also contributing to lack of availabilities to goods that people need Um, so our government has uh, been working on strengthening our supply chain to enhance resilience fluidity and efficiency Uh, we had a task a, a task force made up of industry leaders to come together and provide additional advice to government they released their report last week. This week, I'm on a tour to various cities, different regions within the country to talk about the report, but also to talk about some immediate action that we're taking. So you talked about uh, the, the, uh, the investment today that I announced, by the way, it was $136 million to enable industry players to digitize uh, much of their processes. We believe that the more information that is shared across different platforms, different industry players, the more opportunities there are to enhance efficiency and to improve planning and coordination, to reduce costs, uh, to increase uh, availability. But also other announcements. Uh, yesterday I announced in Winnipeg that we're, we have an initiative to cut red tape in the, in, in the, in the supply chain network. Uh, on uh, Tuesday, I announced that we will be tabling in the House of Commons a new bill that will propose improve uh, and enhance governance for our ports. So all of those measures, plus uh, more investment into our infrastructure, are all going to contribute to enhancing and strengthening our supply chains that will hopefully reduce costs and ingre- increase availability for products that Canadians need. And will you, do we anticipate, is that what Canadians will see as far as how will this impact the lives of Canadians? Would it be, and when you say reduce costs, do you have specifics on reducing the costs of what exactly? Well, you know, if you in, in, in enhance efficiency in, in the supply chain network, you are uh, helping businesses ship products faster and cheaper. Uh, so uh, it would benefit all products and goods that are being shipped today across our network, whether they are imports, whether they are exports. So uh, obviously those are all plans towards it will take, uh, you know, months to, to see their ramification, maybe years, depending on the projects that we're working on. But this is so in the short term, our government is offering relief direct relief to Canadians to deal with the rising cost of living. But we want Canadians to know that we're also addressing the root causes of these uh, 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 of these factors that are causing co- uh, rising cost of living so we can 
relieve the stress that our supply chains are feeling today. Right. And Minister, I know you don't have a ton of time, but I just want to clarify. So with the measures taken today, as far as digitizing and making the port more efficient, uh, you are saying that even though we're seeing the cost of everything go up, that we are actually going to see reduced costs because of this? Absolutely. That is the goal. With, uh, with better information being shared, with more uh, planning being done, with increased efficiency, we will see a reduction of the cost of shipping, a reduction and enhance of availability uh, and, and reliability of our supply chain. So, yes, that is the goal. Uh, and Minister, uh, again, I know you don't have a ton of time. I did want to ask you quickly, though, uh, as you are the Minister of Transport, there are a lot of questions being asked about the cost, speaking of costs, of the ArriveCan app. Uh, people saying that for a $54 million that doesn't match with what that app does. What do you say about uh, calls to look into that as far as why so much was spent on the ArriveCan app? Uh, you know, during the pandemic, during the acute stage of the pandemic, because COVID is still with us today, so I want to be uh, clear. During the acute uh, phase of the pandemic, we, our government did extraordinary measures uh, to help protect the health and safety of Canadians. Part of those measures were ensuring that we have um, a vaccine requirement at our borders. And the best way to verify those vaccination, the vaccination status of arrivals was through a digital tool. Uh, as of, uh, we're talking now how digitization helps efficiency. It was a digital tool to, in, in, to verify the verification status. Today, we no longer need to do that, but it was a necessary tool to protect the health and safety of Canadians, to reduce the, the odds of importation of this virus into Canada. Today, ArriveCan is still useful and an optional way to help uh, travelers who are coming into Canada if they choose to fill out the custom declaration card prior to arriving uh, to the airports, or they can choose to wait in line and fill it out at the machine once they arrive at the airport. So ArriveCan continues to be a, a, a useful tool that will help improve travelers' experience, and it was a necessary tool at also uh, during the height of the pandemic. All right, Minister Omar Algabra, thank you so much for being with us today and for joining the show. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Joe. We are talking now about the Nexus program and some concerns, not only about the current backlog, but also the future of that program. Back to what they were pre-pandemic, many are wondering why the Nexus program hasn't been able to get back on its feet yet. Canada's ambassador to the U.S. says it's going to take a while to catch up on the backlog of over 350,000 applications and counting. So what's the holdup? Kirsten Hillman says the program is being held hostage by the U.S. as it looks to renegotiate the 20-year-old agreement. The U.S. wants Customs and Border Protection officers at Canadian centres, which are jointly staffed, to have the same legal protections they have at land border crossings and at airports when it comes to immunity from prosecution. So for now, those agents are not crossing the border. Hillman says fulfilling that request may not even be possible, but the ball has to get rolling here. Ultimately, we do need those enrollment centres to reopen, and there needs to be a recognition that we will work on the challenges, but we can can't have the whole program on its knees. Tina Trajani, Global News. Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Len Saunders, immigration lawyer with Blaine Immigration. Len, thanks so much for being back with us. No problem. How are you, Jill? I'm very well. How about you? 
Fine, thanks. You first raised this, at least uh, I, the first time I really started looking at this was when you raised concerns saying this was what you were hearing as far as this dispute about the U.S. agents. What are your thoughts on what you just heard and these, these accusations that the whole program is kind of being held hostage? Well, I definitely have a new respect for the Canadian ambassador to the U.S. Her comments are priceless. So there she is in a room with U.S. officials. The front row was the commissioner of Customs and Border Protection. And there she is basically calling the Americans out on this. What's interesting is it's taken months, almost a year, for the Canadian government to admit that this is not a COVID issue. It's something separate. But at least now the government, the Canadian government, is admitting it's a problem. And for the ambassador to do this directly in Washington, D.C., I think it's priceless, her comments. And, you know, what are the Americans going to say? At some point, one side has to budge on this. Right. And like she said, you, we have to get the ball rolling on this and, and figure out how to do this. So what could happen then? Or, or what do you think needs to happen when we talk about renegotiating the terms of the agreement and that the U.S. officers, they want the same legal protections for the officers that work in Canada? Well, my feeling is, you know, this is a gun issue. This is not just protections. This is, you know, the officers wanting to help self-protection on them, just not protected from, you know, whatever, you know, criminal charges they could have by whatever they do in Canada with pre-flight clearance. But well, what's interesting here is it looks like the Canadian government has basically dug in their heels and said, we're not going to budge on this issue. The Americans obviously aren't. So I think what they're going to have to do is realize that there's a stalemate that's been going on forever because the Americans obviously have been in negotiations with the Canadians and neither side is going to budge. So I think what you're going to see is you're going to see a lot of um, cards being issued with no interviews. I just had that happen to my 16-year-old son. In the past, it would always require an interview for minors. And so here's my son, 16 years old. We applied a year ago. His card has just been approved and issued after a year wait with no interview. So I think they're going to crank through all of these cases that don't require interviews. And then maybe what they're going to do is have to set up more offices in the U.S. So you're going to see Canadians coming down to Blaine or Bellingham or Detroit or, you know, Buffalo. And instead of having these offices in Canada, like they've had them in the U.S., I think you're going to see possibly a, you know, permanent closure of the Canadian Nexus offices, and it's all going to have to happen on the U.S. side. What about, though, American workers that, say, work at, at the border control at the airport or, or any other place kind of in the system that has American workers? Wouldn't they be included or, or wouldn't they be wanting, if the issue is wanting the same legal protections, wouldn't they also fall under that? Well, this all comes back down to the pre-flight clearance agreement from 2018, and I testified in front of the Canadian Senate in Ottawa, and they asked me, what was my thoughts of the pre-flight clearance agreement? And I said, I think it's ridiculous allowing guns in Canada on American officers. So what they're trying to do is obviously, you know, instead of just having weapons and pre-flight clearance, have them, you know, in the general area at the airport or downtown Vancouver if they reopen that office. And... You know, it makes sense if they're going to allow them in pre-flight clearance elsewhere, but I don't think they should have allowed them to begin with in Canada. It's a slippery slope. What happens after they allow, are allowed guns in Nexus? Are they going to be allowed guns elsewhere? And so I, 
I, I have a lot of respect for the Canadian government, right? I like living in the U.S. I like everything about the U.S. other than the guns down here. I don't like mm-hmm. that. And I think the Canadian government has to put their feet down and say, we're not going to allow this. But I'm not the prime minister, so this is a Trudeau question. Well, and the public safety minister in Canada has uh, commented briefly on this, saying that U.S. customs officers at Nexus centres aren't entitled to the same legal protection that they have at the airports and at the border. So that, to, to, to me, I mean, it sounds like they're not really in, in any position where they're considering even changing that. No, I, I don't think they will. And, you know, I read the pre-flight clearance agreement. It's 40 pages of godly good crap. And the only thing that really stood out was allowing Americans to have weapons. Um, and so, you know, I, I, think, I think this is a stalemate that's it's been going on for at least a year. I was told about this last fall. And when the offices never reopened before Christmas and then in April when they reopened down here again, I was wondering, is this the real story? And for the Canadian ambassador to literally call out the Americans in Washington, D.C., I think it's great. I read that article. I thought it was wonderful that she admitted to it and called them out. Now it's in the American hands to decide what they're going to do since, you know, it seems like the story's now out and most people understand what the real issue is here. Right. Even though we have the, the um, Canadian, the ambassador saying the U.S. is holding the, pro- the program hostage, but then there are others in the U.S. saying, uh-uh, it's the Canadian government holding it hostage because they're not doing the one thing that we're asking. So uh, in the meantime, though, so, so you said people are, are getting, so pe- are people getting their Nexus card for the first time, not renewals you're talking about, but for the first time? without an interview no 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 first time you have to have an interview right so people are having to wait until they get the conditional approval which seems to be taking a year or longer and then now once you get the conditional approval you then have to schedule your appointment and they're you know six months to a year out so these are long wait times it was never like this prior to uh the shutdown they, they did have some delays in the process before you know march of 2020 but it's definitely worse now so you know, who knows what's going to happen? I would love to know what the Americans de- you know, define as they want their officers to have the same protections, right? What does that mean? Criminal protections, self-armed protections. So, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by this story, and it just seems to kind of be getting more and more public interest now, especially when you have the ambassador making these comments. Right. And if nothing changes, like you said, then if you're a Canadian with a Nexus card that you or say you're Canadian with a Nexus card that needs to be uh, renewed or you're wanting to get a Nexus card, your only option right now then is to book that appointment or to do it in the States. Well, you obviously apply online. And then if you have to do an interview, you have to be interviewed in the U.S., the good thing is, is that as long as you apply for a renewal before the expiry date, they at first extended cards for one year, then two, now five. So now you're getting an automatic five-year extension while your application is pending review. It's the people who are first-time applicants or whose cards expired when they did the reapplication. Those are the people that can't use the Nexus line are now really affected by this. Right. So don't, if you have a card, do not let it expire. Check the expiry date. It's always on someone's birthday, so check your birthday. I know mine's expiring on my birthday in September next year. I've already looked into that, and I'm starting to do the renewal now. Do you have to, and you don't have to give up your card while you're doing the renewal? Absolutely not. You can keep it, and 
they can see in the system too that you've done the reapplication. So it's not like you have to carry on your proof that you've applied. They just know it just automatically extends. All right. Uh, well, we'll see what happens next in uh, this, uh, where both sides are really digging in their heels. Len, thank you so much. Always good to talk with you. Thanks, Jill. Have a good weekend. Well, we know too much screen time is not a great thing, but there is a new report out that shows electronic gaming can potentially trigger legal heart rhythm problems in some children. Video games not being quite the safe alternative, many think they are. So we wanted to find out a little bit more about this study and the findings. And joining us to talk more about this is Dr. Shubayan Sanatini, Division and Head of Cardiology, also a researcher at BC Children's Hospital. Doctor, thank you so much for taking some time with us. Oh, thanks so much for your interest in our work. Uh, well, it seems uh, like a very serious potential uh, side effect, I suppose, for lack of a better word, of gaming. But can you talk a little bit more about what was found here about that link between heart rhythm problems and gaming? Absolutely. Uh, I think it's. I mean, it's very important to acknowledge this is a you know a very introductory study, and the vast majority of the children that are included in the study uh, either had known uh, rare inherited heart rhythm conditions or were found to have these rare conditions. So um, it's really a very, uh, you know, a, a very uh, small specialized population. So the, the experience of, uh, or the, these patients experience cardiac arrest or very serious heart events while playing uh, video games, and so that was a you know that's a new you know a whole new territory for us to be thinking about for these patients. Right, and I'm I'm glad you clarified that because just to, so to to be clear, we're not talking about video games causing problems in otherwise healthy children and and them having these issues because they're playing games. We're talking about this activity that could trigger something in a child where they've already got that condition. Absolutely. So there, there are a few, there are a few um, triggers where, where we as healthcare professionals always have to pay extra attention. So fainting is very common in the general population. About one in three people will faint. But fainting while swimming, for example, is extremely rare and always you know, should prompt a referral to an inherited heart rhythm specialist. So we're, we're wondering whether an event during a video game might, you know, might be one of those kind of specialized triggers that we should be paying attention to. And so how did you even come about or make that connection that the, whatever it is or, and what it is when someone's gaming, that that activity can actually prompt this response in children with this condition? Well, I'm, I'm very fortunate to be part of a, you know, a very collaborative international group of of individuals in this inherited heart rhythm space. And I think a few of us were making these observations. We would meet these patients who would have had or survived a cardiac arrest while they were gaming. And then, you know, a, a few of us put our, put our minds together and said, you know, do you think there's, do you think there's something out here? And so we, you know, we cast a fairly broad net, but clearly um, not, not broad enough. It's a, it's a small study. Um, and, uh, you know, multiple countries represented, but still lots of room for more data. 
Right. Okay. Uh, so, and just to, in case parents are hearing this and are 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 real are hearing this and thinking, oh my goodness, video games are, are dangerous. Uh, not the case. It's just not well, not just, but we're talking again about a specific group and something that that could be triggering. Absolutely. I think you know to. In having a having a potentially lethal or an inherited heart rhythm condition, that's dangerous. Having it undiagnosed is when it's the most dangerous. So, if your you know if your child has a, an unusual episode during video gaming, that's probably worth having a conversation with your with your healthcare provider. And what would that look like? You mentioned fainting, but if we talk about an unusual uh, event while well, well, video gaming, what types of things should parents be looking out for? Well, I think I, I don't think they need to be really vigilant, and, and fainting is the big one. Now, it's, a, it's very different to faint in the midst of an activity, so in the middle of the excitement. For example, you know, if you're in the middle of running a, a lap or, as I mentioned, swimming, that's very different than running, you know, running a lap walking a bit, feeling, you know, a bit unwell and then fainting. So it, it really is up to the healthcare providers to tease out these details. I don't expect the parents to have to, you know, figure out was that, you know, was this okay or not. That's our job. Right. Okay. Um, and you talked about being undiagnosed. Are these conditions where for, for the most part, parents and children know that the children have these conditions or are there potentially a lot of kids out there that, that have this and don't know? Um, I, I don't think there's a lot of kids out there. These conditions, thankfully, are rare. The most common of them occurs about 1 in 2,000. Um, but, you know, that's, that's not super rare. That's, you know, a lot of people in British Columbia. Um, the, the common symptoms, though, like fainting or feeling unusual, those are very common. So, obviously, most of the people that have symptoms do not have these rare conditions. And the, the rare conditions, though... Um, are, 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 again, they, they may present, as we are learning, they may present with these unusual fainting circumstances. Right. And was it specific types of video games? I know it talks about multiplayer war gaming. Did, were, or did it look at, at that uh, specifically in that the, did the type of game play a role in this or was it the act of, of just generally gaming? Well, I... I, I'm not familiar enough with what the normal distribution is of games. So I don't know if 60% of the people are out there playing war games and that this is just a normal sample, or is, it a, you know, is there a slight skew towards these war games? So we, you know, we need a, you know, a much bigger net uh, and, and much more data to start answering those questions. Right. And what about, uh, was it a certain age of child or, or under a certain age, or was there any difference that we know of, say, between boys or girls? Well, there were interestingly only three out of 22 females in the study. So again, I, to, to my mind, that seems, I, I would have thought more girls were, were participating in the games, but that, you know, that might be close to what the distribution is. Um, the age is really the is the the age that we sort of we as pediatric specialists focus on it's that rapid growth phase you know they they range from 7 to 16 but re- there's so much happening in our pre-adolescence and our adolescence you know hormones the the brain changes the body changes there's so much going on so the the fact that this signal is showing up there is not surprising 
All right. So a general takeaway from this, then again, I don't want to scare parents uh, or or make it seem like this is something that is is widespread and happens only from gaming. But the general takeaway, I would uh, I would think, is uh, perhaps more study on this. But but looking at seriously at this condition and the the act of gaming and how they're connected. Absolutely. I think you know the there's some work for us to do in the inherited heart rhythm field you know we probably have to factor the gaming into the into our counseling you know make a safety plan um for families who might be wondering certainly you know if you if you have a family history where people you know young people have you know died suddenly or unexpectedly or you know had major events during swimming um those are definitely people that should be talking to their family doctor thankfully the vast majority of people do not do not have any of those things in their family history Right, but good to to not to kind of ignore that or think it was a one-off because there could be something else going on. Absolutely. All right, Dr. Sanantini, thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this study today. Thank you so much for having us, and I really appreciate your uh, your question. We wanted to take a look back at one of the more memorable races, in particular, a memorable mayoral candidate in Vancouver. And this takes us right back to the 70s when, yes, Mr. Peanut wanted to be mayor. So what was this all about? Well, Andrew Muir joins us now. He is the director of Peanut for Mayor. Andrew, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Well, there are so many uh, issues and uh, debates and differences of opinions when it comes to politics. So it's nice to actually talk about a slightly more lighthearted part of this and a little piece of history. What got you involved or interested in finding out more about the time Mr. Peanut ran for mayor? Well, as a documentary filmmaker, you know, you're always looking for stories that people might be interested in that they don't know about. And... I didn't know about Mr. Peanut. I've been living in Vancouver my whole life. I think anyone who was around in 1974 remembers it, but I had no idea. So when I found out about it, I just thought, this is a great story and I wanted to follow up. <laughs> so, and so when you started doing that and trying to, to dig into this a little bit more, what did you find? Well, the surprising thing is that, you know, it wasn't just a prank. That's probably how it looks on the surface. It was actually a performance art project that was put on by a number of local artists. And did you talk to the, the people involved or, or people that were there at the time? Yeah, so for the project, we interviewed Mr. Peanut himself, whose alias is Vincent Trassoff, and several of the other artists. There was actually a lot of artists who were involved. It wasn't just Vincent, the man in the costume. There was also um, his campaign manager, John Mitchell. And in fact, he did all of the talking during the campaign. Vincent himself was inside the costume, but never said a word. Interesting. And, and did they plan that or they decided going into this that he would be a silent candidate? He wouldn't be doing any talking at all on the campaign trail? <laughs> it might have been that it was difficult to speak through the costume, which was a giant paper mache peanut shell in the style of the planter's peanut man. So it was probably actually difficult for him to speak. But I think, you know, John Mitchell, his campaign manager, it was his idea to run Mr. Peanut for mayor. So it was actually more appropriate that he was the spokesperson. Mr. Peanut communicated more through through dance. He tap danced, he handed out peanuts, he communicated in other ways. 
Right. And people will recognize if they've seen the picture and as you described, the Mr. Peanut costume is in that it looks exactly like the Mr. Peanut of the Peanuts. Was there any issue or did you ever talk to them about copyright or if if it felt like they had kind of stolen that character? Yeah, you know, it is an appropriation of the character. That's how the artists think of it. And it is a corporate logo that's legally owned. Uh, But, uh, you know, Vincent, a.k.a. Mr. Peanut, told me that they never bothered him and he never bothered them. So, so far, no legal issues. (laughs) And you talked about this being uh, that it it wasn't just a joke. There was a reason why they did this. Was it to point to fun or make fun of, of some parts of politics or what was the reasoning? You know, I think that's a really interesting question, but I think it's difficult to answer in the same way, you know, if you ask me, what is the meaning of uh, painting by Monet or Van Gogh? I, it would be difficult for me to answer. I think the, the viewer has to decide. You know, it's, it's like any other work of art. Right. It's, but it's not like they came out saying, this is why we're doing this. I mean, I mean, maybe they felt that there was a chance that he could win and become the mayor, but it seems more likely that, that there was a, another reason maybe or, or that they were doing this for the attention and, or to draw attention to something. One thing I can tell you is they definitely wanted to be on the news. That was a big part of it. They wanted to be featured in the media. And in fact, they captured, they recorded all of those news broadcasts. And those things that they captured actually are the work of art from their point of view. Uh, I think they did hope that they would be elected mayor, but they were probably realistic about his chances. <laughs> and it, it also shows, I think, and maybe I don't know if they were trying to do this, but it also shows uh, how easy it is for anybody, really, if you want to run for mayor. The, if you're voting in Vancouver in this election, the ballot is very, very long, and maybe not for the mayoral candidates, but for the councillors as well. And there, and there have been some uh, comments made about that, that it's not that difficult to put your hat in the ring. And, and I don't know if that's they were trying to show that as well, but I think that may have been a takeaway for some people. You know, it is interesting. Since then, there have been a lot of sort of copycats who have run for mayor in a sort of frivolous way. Back in those days, he was the fourth candidate. There were only four. Uh, And all it took was a deposit, you know, a cash deposit is all it took for him to register his candidacy. And there were no rules. I don't even know if there are now. I don't I don't think there are. But there were no rules either saying uh, you can't be a silent person in a peanut costume for your campaign. (laughs) You know, the only rule that got them is that he had to run as Vincent Trasoff, technically. He couldn't run as Mr. Peanut because it wasn't his legal name. But it didn't matter. Everyone called him Mr. Peanut. Interesting, because there's somebody running on the ballot this time, and they're running as Roller Girl. So I'm curious now if that's the person's legal name. Uh, the rules might have changed. I don't know. Maybe. Um, you, you've aired, or, uh, shown the documentary uh, Peanut for Mayor. What kind of a response are you getting to it? So far, very positive, and it's been taken very well by members of the media who are very interested in the story, just like they always were. And so that's been one of the great things is that, you know, it's still getting covered in the news. You know, 48 years later, Mr. Peanut's still being broadcast in the news as they originally wanted. I think that's really the biggest success. The legacy of that time Mr. Peanut ran for mayor. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, how do you top that? You're making a documentary, a Peanut for Mayor, like you said, as, as a documentary filmmaker, what, what do you do for your next project after you've done that? I think it's safe to say that this is the peak. <laughs> <laughs> There's nowhere to go from here. That's about as good as it gets.
<laughs> All right. Well, never say never. You never you never know. Maybe something will happen this civic election that will be need to be documented at a later date. Uh, can people still see it if people want to check it out? The world premiere is happening on Saturday at 8 p.m. at the Western Front. I believe tickets are sold out now, but we are definitely planning on holding more screenings and hopefully getting it in a film festival. All right. Sounds good. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this. Appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Well, remember this story? Today, justice is done. State attorney for Baltimore City, Marilyn Mosby, apologized yesterday to the families of both Adnan Syed and Heyman Lee as she announced her office's decision to drop all charges against Syed. He was tried as an adult at just 17 for strangling and killing his 18-year-old ex-girlfriend. But subsequent investigations cast doubts on his conviction. Last month, in a stunning reversal, prosecutors asked a judge to vacate the guilty verdict and release him from prison. They said that in 1999, there were two alternative suspects, both with histories of violence against women and one who even threatened Lee. But that information was never shared with Syed's defense team. The judge agreed and gave prosecutors 30 days to decide whether or not to retry the case. And they're now going one step further, saying that newly tested items from the crime scene exonerate Syed. There was a DNA mixture of multiple contributors on both Miss Lee's shoes. And most compellingly, Adnan Saeed, his DNA was excluded. Syed, who's now 41, has always maintained his innocence. And he is now a free man after spending all of those years in jail. So we're talking today about junk science and how it can lead to wrongful convictions, which can be very life altering. And what we now know about those methods, forensic analysis. Joining me to do that is Dr. Dean Hildebrand, forensic expert as well, Dean of the BCIT School of Computing and Academic Studies. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, so many people paying attention to that story of Adnan Syed. It's sadly not the only story like that. What do we know about how things have changed or about that role that so-called junk science plays? You know, I think it has changed. There's a much greater awareness now and it's growing. You know, we back in the day, we heard of the CSI effect when that show was so popular and there was this sense of infallibility of forensic science and an almost white coat effect, you know, when the forensic scientist was on the stand and, and testifying about their findings. Um, those findings were often not challenged. And we still have a problem with that, you know, with that today. It, it's, it's getting better, certainly, with these high-profile um, wrongful conviction cases and, um, and the experts now uh, being more aware of this. So was it a case of, and in that story, we heard about what sounded like flaws in the investigation, as well as flaws when dealing with the DNA. Is it human error that we're talking about? Or are we talking more about the fact that the the way we can test and the technology we have now is so much better? Well, it's certainly that. And it's just really it's because of these high profile cases that forces a spotlight on the whole discipline. And it's, that's really the, the lever for change. So it's not always about the science. Certainly there are, there are um, uh, fields of science like bite mark analysis I hold up as a prime, prime example of, of um, 
disciplines that are, are really fraught with, with uh, difficulties. But it's not always the science. It's, uh, it could be, you know, um, uh, tunnel vision of, of police and prosecutors. It could be um, the eyewitness, faulty eyewitness testimony uh, and, and false uh, um, witnesses, basically um, false confessions. So there's a whole slew of things that can lead to a, a wrongful conviction and not just the science. Right. But is it different, though, if if we're talking about a, a case, whether it's a, a jury case or, or even what's being presented to a judge, it, it would be different, wouldn't it, looking at or taking the testimony, say, of an eyewitness, which is their account of what they saw, as opposed to somebody like yourself, a, a, a forensic DNA expert who puts the, the evidence forward and, and says this is it. It's It's almost more like math, isn't it? Yeah, I would say that um, certainly, like I said at the beginning, this white coat effect, when you see a doctor or a scientist, somebody with a PhD up there talking about their science, uh, the science can be extremely difficult, first of all. And so it's not always intuitive to a judge, jury, or even the the crown or defense to dig deeply and to, to critically look at a discipline. So it's a lot of times, even today, you know, DNA evidence is taken at face value. Um, and DNA evidence is probably arguably one of the best and, and most secure um, methods we have, um, although it certainly has its own own challenges. But it's um, some of these disciplines are so complicated that it's difficult to understand and, and difficult to challenge critically. Right. It's because how would a lawyer or a judge in that case, would you even know where to begin if you were going to challenge something? I, I would I would argue you, you probably wouldn't even know what questions to ask or, or to know what you should be challenging. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and training and education um, for judge, jury um, and lawyers as well, not the jury, but the, the judge and uh, lawyers is, is vital. But I feel for them because in any given criminal case, for example, they could be dealing with a completely different expert, completely different area of science. There's so much for them to know. Uh, it's, it's really challenging for them to really deeply understand uh, certain areas of this. So how do we deal with that or make it so there, there aren't these wrongful convictions or, or questions caused by this in that if we're talking about testimony, like you said, bite mark comparisons, or if we're talking about things like, like blood typing or even fingerprint evidence? Yeah, well, you know, we have uh, obviously a forensic science program at BCIT, and this is part of the curriculum. We teach them the science, of course, but they have to also understand um, the challenges and the risks involved and and the need for scientific rigor and critical thinking in their areas. I think it really starts with the next generation of police officer, forensic scientists and lawyers that, that are really aware of this and really understand that these things have to be underpinned with solid scientific methodology. So I think it really starts uh, with the education of the next generation. And you mentioned the CSI effect. Are there, is there still that kind of thought process that things are uh, cut and dry, that, that you get the evidence, you test it, and it's, it's foolproof, and not that everything gets all uh, done within one hour, but, that, but does it kind of oversimplify it in that, that there's this thinking that the, the systems are there and, and they, they give you 100% accurate information? Yeah, I do think that. I think it is still a problem to this day. And it's, again, this is the challenge of um, defense in particular to really understand the whatever the evidence is that's being used against their client. And to, if they don't understand it, they need to, they basically need to hire somebody uh, 
um, to help them interpret and help them walk through in detail what the evidence means and doesn't mean and help help to prepare for the court process. Uh, the numbers that come from groups like Innocence Canada and the Innocence Pro- Project saying that uh, the number could be as high as 52% of wrongful convictions involve the misapplication of forensic science. I mean, half of those cases, that, that does seem like an alarmingly high number. Yeah, it's shocking. And it's, you know, it's the reason we need to have these conversations and the reason why you know we, we, we really demand that... Uh, our students that are studying forensic science and our police officers and that understand the risks involved and they have the power to, to change that. So there's certainly work to do. And so what do you tell students or, or what kind of is the, the beginning point of that when, when stressing how important it is that you have to get this stuff right because somebody's life is literally hanging on this? Yeah, I mean, we, um, we get it in front of them. In the classroom, we have uh, symposiums and seminars. We're putting on one uh, tonight, actually, where we invite in uh, experts that have real-life knowledge and have dealt with wrongful convictions and the, the trauma that it causes. So we put it out in front of them for them to see. Right. And on the, the flip side of that as well, is there something to celebrate, though, in the advancements that we've seen in this technology and, and the ability? I mean, we've seen so many cases of using ancestry databases where matches have been found and people, uh, cold cases, have been solved because of them. Is there something to celebrate there as far as the progress that has been made? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, my area is forensic DNA and I'm, I'm you know, passionate about it. it it has it's not perfect but i tell you it's uh it's a powerful technology and it's getting even more powerful ability to not just link people to crime but also to exclude the innocent and that's really what we're talking about here today too is um, it has that power to exclude and when you talk about forensic dna what specifically uh, are you talking about as far as how much uh, material needs to be there or how much do, do you need to to be able to study it and analyze it and get some of those answers oh less and less over the years so they're extremely sensitive so we work in in picogram or nanogram amounts which is you know we're talking about uh, a few dozen cells or less you know, worth of DNA that um, we're still able to get genetic information from and compare it to something. And even if we go back, don't go back that far, but even if you go back 10, 20 years, how has that changed as far as the amount that is needed to get that clear reading and to get that match? Yeah, orders of magnitude at the beginning of the science, you needed, say, uh, the size of a quarter, that amount of, of blood, for example, to be able to do anything with. And now, you know, you probably could have a, a microscopic amount of blood you can't even see, and you'd be able to to generate useful information. And luckily, you know, we can go back if the evidence exists still it's in storage. Um, in some of these cold cases, we're often able to reanalyze um, uh, evidence that that wasn't useful years ago. Which I suppose then would also point to how important it is in keeping all of the evidence, even if it doesn't seem like it's if it's not pivotal at the time. Absolutely. We stress the importance of keeping and safeguarding the evidence when when we're done with a case, we we package it and, um, you know, the police, for example, will store it um, for, for many years.
And uh, Dean, just one other question about this. Moving forward on this, because there have been such advances, like you've talked about just in the past few years, do you think there is still a lot of room that the technology will get even better? Yeah, it has to. And I I think we will see some of these disciplines fall away. You know, we um, bite mark analysis, for example, again, isn't used very often, but it's still out there. And uh, particularly in the United States, there are still proponents of it um, as as a viable comparative technique and it's some of these techniques will probably just have to have to stop being used and and what is the issue with bite marks uh, analysis that it's just not an accurate way of identifying someone yeah so i mean you could argue and forensic odontologists will say that the human dentition the human teeth are unique and they will then take the next step to say therefore that the marks that they make on say skin are unique and a, and a forensic dentist will look at a pattern analysis on on skin from what they conclude is a bite mark and then take a comparative bite mark sample from somebody and overlay the two and compare and in the past they have they have excluded everybody on earth except for this potential uh, suspect and convicted and some people in the united states have been uh, put to death because of because of that and then they've been overturned later with, with dna for example Well, it's fascinating, fascinating stuff and technology. We'll have to leave it there for today, though. Dr. Dean Hildebrand, thank you so much for joining us and talking more about this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, we know it has been unseasonably warm. It has been sunny. It has been dry. Great to be outside. Many people seeing their gardens lasting a lot longer than in previous years. But what does it mean for gardening and growing? And how do we do all of that while also being mindful of our water use? Well, we are joined now by Wim van der Zandt, president of Artnat Plantland, to talk all things gardening. Wim, so great to have you back on the show. Nice to be back, Kel. You must be getting a lot of questions about this kind of odd fall that we're having and what that means when it comes to gardening. Yeah, it's unreal. I mean, a lot of questions people are, are coming uh, to me with are things like, um, like, is my plant dying? You know, they, like, for example, rhododendron, it's sort of a commonly recognized plant in most of our gardens. But they're, they're, they, they sort of the lower leaves are yellowing and, and people are thinking, what's the problem? Is it dying? But it is just stress-related um, from the long, dry summer. Um, and it won't die. It'll survive, but it'll be thinner for sure. And plants do that in general. They will self-shed purposely so that they can preserve at least their life long-term. Because um, they, they, they won't be able to get enough moisture to satisfy all parts and every leaf, but they would have a, be able to get enough or, or uh, sustain enough to actually support a certain amount of leaves, which means it'll, it'll sustain its life. So how do people, should people be watering then? Or again, with the watering restrictions being extended and people in Metro Vancouver being asked to conserve water, what, what do you say to that? Well, usually, um, yes, definitely, if and when you can, for sure. And definitely, if you're watering, use a nozzle of some sort so you're not just a, a straight stream that you just end up getting runoff. You want it to penetrate gently the soil so that it will, will filter through and definitely not run off. Um, so that's important as well. But it's funny, you know, it's like our lawns, you know, a lot of them are just are brown, which is okay. It's alive. It'll come back, uh, come some rains of fall. But you wonder why, well, why is that dandelion still green in there? The dandelion's green, but the lawn is brown. Well, that's a lot of plants and weeds or plants or trees. Um, 
they have what's considered or, or, or recognized as a, a tap root, which means it has a single root that goes deep into the ground. It can get moisture or cool, uh, cool moisture from deeper, where a lawn is very shallow-rooted. Um, and it's often helpful to know that plants in your yard that are shallow-rooted, for example, the rhododendrons and azaleas, very shallow-rooted. Our cedars, our hedging cedars, very shallow-rooted. Um, those things will need a little more water more often. Not lots um, necessarily, but more regular or frequent watering because they don't have a large taproot that, will can, that can grab water from deeper in the earth. All right, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, what about vegetable gardens? And people may be noticing that they're getting a lot more life out of their vegetable gardens where normally it may you may have been done with it by this time of year, but things are still growing because it's so warm out. Oh, you know, so good for uh, our, our, our crops for winter. Like there's so many things we can plant and grow in our region that will grow through cool, cool months of winter and fall and, you know, be harvestable in December. Um, like Brussels sprouts is a great one. You harvest them right from your garden in December. And many other things like kale you can harvest, you know, throughout the entire winter. So this is great for them because they're getting a good, healthy uh, start um, uh, for their growing season. They like the cool temperatures. But for, for our regular summer crops, oh, spectacular too. I mean, tomatoes are getting enough sunlight and warmth uh, to basically ripen what it often is just left on the vine as green tomatoes. Fig trees, you know, we grow fig trees in, in the lower mainland, and there's a lot of them popular to our Italian friends. It seems like there's one in every yard. But they can't, they don't get enough heat and sun and warmth through to their harvest. And, and unless they do, they're useless. So this is great for them. And many other crops, you're getting a long, longer period of harvest period. So so it's very fortunate for our regular gardens and a, and a, and a good year for it when when um, vegetables and, and uh, groceries are so expensive. This is a, a great reminder that we should be growing um, you know, more of our own product produce, and it doesn't take necessarily a lot of square feet outside. All right, that is good advice as well. I mentioned we'll open up the phone lines in the second half of this half hour, but I do have a couple of questions that have come in via email. Uh, this listener wants to know, is it too late to core aerate the lawn? He says, last autumn is the first time I used a fall fertilizer on the lawn and had a fantastic-looking lawn in the spring. Yes, no, core aerating you can do now, no problem, and it's very beneficial for a lawn, um, either doing it in fall or in spring. Uh, it's basically just pulling some plugs out of the lawn. It, it kind of does a root pruning to the lawn, um, but it also will allow um, you know moisture to sort of penetrate that, that upper layer easier. Uh, we usually recommend either putting some sand or some soil, just backblading with a rake so that you fill some of those holes. Um, so you rake out the cores, get put them in some other part of the garden, um, use them as a mulch, which I didn't mention is a great way to help your plants through the warm summer months, um, is to mulch, whether it would be manure or soil or, or bark mulch or whatever. But that will insulate and keep more moisture in the soil for a longer period of time. So on those shallow-rooted plants I mentioned earlier, like rhododendrons and azaleas, have mulching them either in fall or spring or any time of the year, really. It's a great way to help them through a hot summer. But, yeah, and, you know, um, your, your, uh, your email suggests uh, of winter fertilizer. The difference that that makes to a lawn over the winter 
has your lawn looking beautiful so much earlier in the spring. And a lot of that is because of the nitrogen that is used in those fall fertilizers or any fertilizer. They break down very slowly during, during cool temperatures. But as it warms, the nitrogen starts to, to break down and be available to the lawn roots. And then all of a sudden, your lawn can uh, come back so much quicker from uh, a miserable winter um, and uh, so, so definitely I'd recommend a, a fall fertilizer on your lawn for fall. All right. So we'll take uh, one more email question before we take a, a short break. Uh, this listener is, has written in saying, can you please ask Wim if you could help identify the little white leaping bugs that are on much of my plants? They are long and slender, white, and appear to leap off my plants and grass when I water. Are they thrips? I'd like to know because I need to call them. Yeah, there is, there's, a, there's a few different insects that that hop and there's actually a weed that could possibly be something that that uh, she is um referring to like it's a there's a weed in the garden that has it's called a clickweed and what it does is, is when it when it when it sets seed they you, you move the plant the weed just a little bit and they they go they go flying in the air these seeds go flying in the air could be look like could look like it's a bug, but if it is a if it is a bug, it's a leaf hopper probably. They don't do a lot of damage, so I, I wouldn't put too much effort to trying to control them. They're a nuisance, and if you want to get rid of them for sure, but uh, that's that's fine. But otherwise, um, you know, for the most part, they're not going to do any damage to your plants. So so just know that as well. My guest is Wim Vanderzam, president of Artnap Plantland. We are talking all things gardening, given this unseasonably warm and sunny weather. At the same time, residents of Metro Vancouver being asked to watch how much water they are utilizing. Let's see what you have for questions on the open line. And Greg in Langley, go ahead. Hey, Wim. Uh, hey, uh, quite a quest, two questions. For garlic, what would I use for... Uh, fertilizer can i use a put a compost over them that would be fine or no yes no they don't need any fertilizer they're they're one of the best crops to grow because they take so little effort and care and and uh, little maintenance and and you you basically do do nothing to them except harvest them when time and if you can still get them it's there's still time to put them in the ground fall is the best time to be planting garlic so so definitely uh definitely get them in the ground and uh or or or, you know, if you if you have some, I mean, this is a great time to mulch them a yeah. little bit as well. Okay, the other question I got is about Roundup. Um, I was talking to my uncle. He owns a 10-acre farm in Ontario. And what he does before he discs, about 10 days before he applies Roundup for the weeds? What do you think? He pulls the weeds? Pardon me? It, it, you, did you say he pulls the weeds? No, no, he doesn't pull them. He uses Roundup no. before yeah. he discs. And about 10 days after he's applied the Roundup, then he, he discs before he starts his uh, planting. Oh, yeah. Okay, so, so the way Roundup works is it is a translocator-type herbicide. So it basically what you, what you spray it on, what green leaves you spray it on, it will absorb in and, and, and be absorbed by the plant and circulate through the entire plant, including its roots, its roots which is why it's a great weed killer, uh, because it kills a weed root and all. Um, but, yeah, basically, once it's, uh, you know... A, Three to five days after it's in the system of the plant, it's the plant is dead. It may still look okay, but the plant is dead. It's it's done. So you could either just you know, eliminate the leaves if you wanted to, if what he's doing. So yeah, he's he's doing the right thing. All right, Greg. Thanks for those questions. Let's go to Scott. Scott, what's your question? Yeah, Wim, you mentioned clipweed, and I this has been bugging me for a long time. See, 
seems I'm 56, and I don't ever remember seeing clickweed when I was a kid. And I get in my garden. There's all these things I see now that that I don't, I never used to see. Are these all invasive species? I don't. Am I not imagining things here that we didn't have it? <laughs> good. That's a good point. You know. Um, well, you know, it, it's things do come from other countries. Plants come from other countries and are imported here, and often they are. Yeah, a, a weed in a pot, and you know it can start as simple as as that way. And um, and many of these weeds, they actually, uh, you know, really like our climate. It's a very mild climate, um, so they make it through winters. They they germinate easily. Lots of rainfall. So, yeah, it, you know, there's many more weeds that, than there was when I was a kid too, for sure. And and most likely the majority are from our imports from other countries. All right, uh, Scott, thanks for that call, uh, for sure. Let's uh, go to the email. And Shelley wrote a question saying, we live in Nelson and our azaleas all have an almost chalky residue on the leaves. It's been on the leaves for months. Do you know why this would happen? Yeah, that, there's a powdery mildew, um, and it's not uncommon to azaleas, depending on the climate. And it really is climate-related, uh, and maybe more so humidity-related. But um, it's nothing to worry about. You know, plants have a way of protecting themselves, and they really can protect themselves well when they're healthy. So that's why we like to say, you know, food is important. It's a, it's a living, breathing thing that um, will require food, and often our soils are depleted of nutrition. So fertilizing our plants at least once a year is a really wise idea, just a general-purpose fertilizer, nothing specific. Um, and then also, you know, we plant our plants, but we don't necessarily invest in that hole because digging a good deep hole and adding some fresh earth to the bottom it's a lot of extra work. Uh, I'm guilty of that too, I think, sometimes. But the wrong short of it is investing in that hole when you, when you plant your plants is, uh, is, is the best thing you can do for them for health-wise. So you know, digging a good hole, adding some fresh earth. If that isn't the case, the plant is in the ground now, make sure you mulch. When I say mulch, just any, any material, soil, bark mulch, manure, uh, compost, just put it around the root systems, you know, inch or two or three at a time, um, and particularly out to the drip line where the where the feeder roots are. It's very important. All right. Uh, another email question. I tried to grow pumpkins. They are literally rotting on the vine before they have matured. Can you ask what the reason might be for this? Well, that's a tough one without knowing more information. The uh, pumpkins often um, can get something called the blossom and rot, which does affect the pumpkin a little later on as it matures, even though it's still very young. Um, and it could be the moisture in the ground is just is too much. Um, excess moisture around a pumpkin, uh, although they use a lot of moisture and utilize, uh, I mean, a ton of moisture, those leaves, um, you know, they, they, uh, they need a lot of water. So the only thing that I suggest, could, uh, other, other item that it could be that it, is that there's just too much water maybe. And, um, and pumpkins and any, any of the squash family, they don't really like excess moisture, sitting moisture. All right. We've only got a minute left. Uh, so Dave, uh, I have your question, but we need it quick. Oh, hi. It was just a, a comment and a question. I was just a little disappointed with your answer there about the roundup and that you didn't uh, happen to mention anything about how uh, uh, dangerous Roundup is, and it's been proven worldwide that it's uh, cancer-causing, et cetera, et cetera, bad for our uh, uh, underground water, bad for plants, uh, edible plants, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just uh, curious and disappointed that you didn't uh, address that. Thank you. 
You know, that's a good and that's a good observation. And I, I, I don't disagree with you, but I, I can't totally agree with you. We have a very stringent rule for, for when anything is brought to market, any pesticide is brought to market. And the science, and it's arguable on both sides, there's a lot of arguments with Roundup, whether it's, uh, whether it's harmful or it's not harmful. Um, you know, I, I only go by what the government says and has allowed uh, for consumption uh, to the general public, and Roundup is readily available to the general public. So, you know, I'm not a scientist, so I can't answer the question either way, other than, you know, we do rely on experts for that. All right. Wim, thank you so much, as always, for joining us this afternoon. Have a great weekend. It's always a pleasure, Jill. Have a great weekend. You too.